and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode 30, discussing common misconceptions about Buddhism, um, which, which is a topic I think is important. It's come up in various various points in the past, but I think um, deserves its own episode. We, we've had some some questions from people and um, some issues, but uh, before I get to that, I am your host, Dharma Kirti, and I am joined, as always, by the squad of Aura you and Storm, if you guys want to say hi. Hi. Uh, hello. Hello. So, yeah, I think, Storm, you had the um, the impetus for this. You were, there were some, some particular things you had in your mind that I think you wanted to, to discuss, no? Yeah, there was some, uh, it was based on an argument that I, uh, maybe a discussion rather than an argument that I had with somebody on, on Twitter whose name is Raphael that appears to be a British man. And uh, it was just some strange stuff that I had never heard. And I was like, man, how do you come away from reading this material with those things, with those like kind of weird ideas? And one of them was that um, basically like anybody who's not currently fully enlightened is like a, a dumb pussy idiot who sucks. And uh, I was like, that is really not the case at all. Um it was really strange. And then the other one, there's like basically three. The other one that uh, was that the lack of self stuff is dumb because like, look, there you are. That's a self. Uh, you are an individual. And then let's see, what was the other one? So you had the, anybody who's not enlightened is a, is a, just a big dumb, dumb. And that's what Buddhism says. And then you had the self is obviously real. Um, oh yeah. And the other one was that like, uh, pointing out that living is the same thing as suffering and that there are certain inescapable truths like impermanence and stuff is actually just, it's not good to talk about at all. And it's just like an impetus to wallow in a bunch of sad stuff and abuse yourself and, and et cetera. So that was the kind of, I just thought maybe we'd just talk about that kind of thing. Just kind of clear up some of that stuff. Cause it, none of that is right. All of that is a very weird take to come away with. So I thought well, we would just discuss it. Yeah, and there's like you know you kind of have to separate out when you when you talk like this. What is motivated, quote unquote, mistakes, and what are honest mistakes, right? Because people can be interested in something and and be not totally educated on it and have a misconception, and then you go, oh no, actually it's it's more like this, and then you can have a nice discussion about it. And then you have people you know who might just have decided ahead of time that they hate something, and then. <clears throat> And then any piece of evidence you give them, they just find a way to twist it around and 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 you know and and uh, make make it show that that thing is bad, just like they always knew it was bad, right? And to to me, those second that second category is that's kind of fun to talk about it, but it's way less interesting. What's more interesting is you know is misconceptions that people have that are sort of more understandable misconceptions, um, whether for historical reasons or just because they're complicated or, or whatever. So that's sort of what I would add in. And uh, by the way, I made a list too of, of things that I, I think are cool and I can hit them later on. But um, what I realized when I was making my list was that it, it was just a list of things that I really, I really hope that people understand. It's, it's, it's not even like, uh, you know, like the necessarily misconceptions, just stuff that I think is so important that, um, that, that really rings true about the the Dharma to me. I realized I, I started making more about my own, <laughs> more my own thoughts than, than other people's misconceptions, but I, I, I will see the floor. Well, no, I, I think mean, Hey, you know, this is a holiday episode, you know, everybody <laughs> we're on, we're on break so we can just keep it, you know, we can do whatever. 
Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Also, and by the way, DK, b- b- before yes. you get in there, DK, I would just encourage to our live listeners, we love having you guys here. Uh, this is probably a good episode to put your questions in the chat. Definitely. As always, we, we can't promise to hit all of them because sometimes we get a lot. But uh, please pop them in there and we'll, we'll try to hit as many as we can. That's a great point. Um, what I was going to say is only that I think it's an it's an important distinction to keep in mind that, um, yeah, like, w- what is a misconception? You know, it's some of that. It's an, it's an whoa, is I think I could get some people. Sorry, my oh, bad. It's fine. My bad. There's some, there's some, uh, how to say. It's not, it's not so much about whether people are reachable or not. I mean, that is an issue, but it's a subsidiary one. More, it's where is the misconception coming from? And, and sometimes, I know I'm speaking from personal experience. Like, I remember when I first um, uh, encountered Buddhism, you know, I was, I was receiving some teachings on a, like, foundational level text, and it was just going into, you know, what... Um, the different hell realms and the different, you know, places you can end up when you die and why you should be really, um, why you should understand how important it is to be born as a human and how rare it is and how precious it is and how great an opportunity it is and we really shouldn't waste it, which I was I was actually on board with to some extent, but then I was like, I, I asked the 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 um, the person, te- the, the teacher of the uh who was giving the teachings i was like so what happens if someone's like about to attain enlightenment and then they like um you know get hit in the head with a boulder or something and they die and then they like wind up in some kind of you know hell realm or something and he's like well you know then that was their karma essentially was the answer i was like well i don't like that you know and and it it, it, it's it's not that i mean now i can sort of laugh at it sort of naive and, and really my objection had less to do with anything other than my own pride essentially and i just you know i thought that this thing should conform to my uh you know essentially kind of quote-unquote enlightenment derived um liberal democratic at the time values um european etc and and um th- that's there, there's a there's it's important to resist i guess the temptation to uh want our to, to want this thing or whatever anything really to conform to our own pre-existing biases and, and opinions uh that that's not quite the same thing as a misconception at the same time you know it it those misconceptions born out of that can be genuine to some extent so yeah i don't know i just think it's an interesting thing to keep in to, to think about in that way i think probably the uh the biggest misconception that maybe somebody that was new would have is that it's easy to mistake the idea that there's not an ultimate expressible ultimate truth in language for the idea that there's just no truth, right? It's not the same thing. And and the other big one is probably something not having an immutable, undividable forever essence isn't the same thing as it just not existing the way the pink elephant in my room doesn't exist. Those two things, like a lot of people will make a, some snap judgments about, the tradition based on misinterpreting either one of those things. Well, the the single biggest one, right, is no self. I mean, the the in in sort of classical Buddhist scholarly analysis, you the, in the Mahayana at least, there there's a we, we refer to the selflessness of persons and to the selflessness of phenomena, and um, or the emptiness of. Per- I mean, it, it, typically it's more it's selflessness, and but the 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 meaning really there is is emptiness, um, emptiness in other words, is the lack of self-nature. Um, the fact that all phenomena are dependently originated and, and don't have inherent 
existence on their own, independent of anything else. And so in, in the, um, one of the, I think this is, the, to me, it's the single biggest misconception is um, when, when people hear that, they, when the people say, like, you know, the Buddhist teaching that there is no self, they, they immediately, the first thing, you know, the, 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 the gut reflexive reaction is, what, you're telling me I don't exist? You know, that's nonsense. Like, what, and it just sounds, you know, maybe it sounds like nihilism. Um, and, then, and then sort of by the same token that people have the same idea or a similar idea about when we talk about, as we have in the episodes uh, reading the Mula Bhadyamaka Karika about the selfless, which, which is about essentially, you know, the emptiness or the selflessness of phenomena, the fact that the phenomenal world in that same exact kind of a way doesn't have inherent existence. Um, people say, well, what are you saying? Nothing exists or nothing really exists. What does that even mean? You know, or you, you just sound like a nihilist. Um, and, and that, yeah, I would say is, is, is typically the, the, that's the one of maybe the single biggest and most important, uh, misconception to watch out for, particularly regarding the self, particularly, I mean, the, the self of persons, so to speak, the, the, um, you know, because it, it's, it's a tricky balance to understand the difference between saying that there is no self, but, but yeah, obviously you have, you are experiencing things currently. You have experience currently. No one's denying that. Very importantly, no one's denying that. You know, the, yeah, the it's more a statement thing. about, go ahead, buddy. It's more a statement about the way you're here than it is that you're not here. You know, that's it. Go ahead. And I mean, it also, they're yeah, conflating sure. the experiences with the a self. So it's like saying, is, well, is that the same thing? No. Yeah, well, we did, I mean, we talked, we, we did some of this with Nagarjuna, and I believe he, do, he returns to the topic at various points. I mean, it's all applicable, but the idea is, right, when, when you say, when you say that there is a self, let's say, hypo, hypothetically, we're going to say, you know, okay, well, what do you mean? I have, uh, of course, I, I exist. It was like, okay, well are you the same as your experiences or are you different from your experiences? Because I mean, to right off the bat, it would seem to be the case that if you're talking about a self and an experiences as though, you know, they would seem to be that there would have to be different things that there is a, a self, you know, me, there's a me in here and I am the one who has these experiences and these experiences are things that I have. They're like properties or qualities that I possess. But then when you start drilling down into that, it's like, okay, well, you know, where, um, if, if I am different from my experiences, does that mean that I can be me but not have any experiences? And, and then you start to get into these logical problems. I mean, this is, this is again, kind of Nagarjuna 101, but it's why we're reading that text is to see, you know, the ways in which we tell these stories that don't actually make any sense uh, as soon as you start looking into them. But, but people go their whole lives. People go eons and eons of, in, you know, billions of rebirths without ever actually examining uh, these stories that they tell themselves. You know, this wasn't planned, but I actually do think that you're right, DK, that 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 question about no self and, and how is it misinterpreted or, or misunderstood is really a core. Uh, you said maybe the core one, and I, I wouldn't disagree necessarily. Um, but it, it, it is funny that like we do. So we are sort of addressing that um, week by week uh, in our our series on Nagarjuna. So I think for people who are interested in that, yeah, I would encourage them to go back and listen to those if they haven't heard them already. And keep following us. Because by the way, to our listeners, we're we're going to finish that text. We're going to go all the way through. We're not going to abandon it. <laughs> um, but it's I happening. To say, you know, it's happening, bro. Um, but I wanted to say something that, uh, that that's tangential um, 
but with a different focus, which is the nihilism thing. And you brought that up, Dharmakirti. And I, to me, that was the one I wrote down that I think that is the most common one. And obviously, it's related to the no self thing. But I think uh, because nihilism is sort of a well-known concept in Western philosophy in general, or and also just sort of in pop philosophy, people have a vague idea of what it means to be a nihilist and it's it's generally considered a bad thing I mean, unless say you're what you trying will to be about the, about the tenets of national socialism <laughs> no, at least it's an ethos <laughs> no donnie these men are are cowards um but um yeah that's a big one and i in, what i realized when i was making my notes is that it's a common thing that gets thrown at Buddhism, and often the response is sort of a defensive one where you go back, well, no, no, because blah, 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 blah. And I decided, although those are valid arguments and we can make them if we want, I decided I want to go in the offensive um, because Buddhism is an incredibly positive uh, philosophy, religion, whatever you want to call it. Um, it is completely focused on happiness. It is completely focused on on joy, on uh, spreading uh, happiness and peace and love to people around you, uh, both in the Mahayana and in the Theravada. Um, and it's if you ever meet somebody uh, who's an advanced practitioner or an enlightened master or whatever, they are almost without exception incredibly fun to be around. Like it just you like being in the room with them. You feel this warmth and joy and love and um, you know, they, they can <laughs> crack jokes, you know, that are like really funny. Even the ones that are grumpy, sometimes they're grumpy yes. and they're still just a blast to be around. Yeah. Yes. I love exactly. the ones that are grumpy. That's like, I mean, that's a Zen thing anyway, but there's a way that they're grumpy. Yeah. That's like, it's almost cute. Yes, exactly. And, uh, I think of Zen too. And I think of that, uh, the, these sort of like austere masters who are also like just incredibly awesome. Um, and then you can also just see, you know, without being a, a fully enlightened master yourself, in your own practice, you can see, and I, I harp on these things a lot, and sometimes I think that this right-wing Dharma squads, for me personally, uh, is just like an exercise in me repeating the same three or four points. But who cares, right? <laughs> I think they're really important points, and so I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The, the teaching on karma is so incredibly positive, and it's funny because the first thing people think of is like what you were saying, DK, like, well, what if he gets, you know, what if I get hit by a boulder, you know, and then I have to go to the hell realms for whatever reason. And, the, and then the answer is, well, that's his karma. That sounds like such a negative thing. And I guess from a certain sort of mundane perspective, it, it is kind of negative, you know, it's kind of like a bummer, right? However, the point of the teaching on karma is not actually to explain what's going on currently in your life. You can use it that way, and it does function that way. That's part of the teaching. But that's not why the Buddha taught it. It doesn't really, like that, first of all, that, that, that kind of understanding already existed in India before the Buddha came along. The point of the teaching on, the, uh, the teaching on karma in Buddhism is that you are right now, as you are listening to this, creating your own karma for the future. And... You have radical free will to, and I know that's a term from Western philosophy, but whatever. You have radical choice to create your own karma, both for the present moment and for the future. Uh, and that's positive doubly. So it's positive because for the future, you can pave the way for yourself to reach total enlightenment, the ultimate bliss, like amazing, great things. You'll have the power to like manifest joy for people around you and guide them towards, you know, uh, greater enlightenment and everything. It just amazing good things in the future, like un, unimaginably good things. You have the power to start doing that for the future right now. And 
even before you reach that point, you have the power in every moment of your life. It's not always easy, believe me, I know. But you have the power at every moment in your life to decide to take the more uh, open, free, positive, loving, joyful side of things, even in the even in the midst of the hardest times in your life. And that is the, that is like the central teaching of Buddhism. Uh, we don't think of it that way in the West, I think, a lot of times. Uh, and I think some people in the East all, might miss that sometimes. But that is that is the core of Buddhism. So when people say it's nihilistic, instead of like getting this defensive posture and sort of backtracking and playing defense against that thing, I would just just come right out and just assert the amazing positiveness of it. I guess that that's what a uh, super big misconception that I, I feel very strongly about. You know, that was really inspiring, all the stuff you're saying. And, and it made me think of something like I had this image that I always use to like uh, ground myself. And I, the, you know, as an entity, you're, you're empty of self-essence and that emptiness that's at the center of you, if you will, is like a, it's like a well and your karma, you can just let it fall into that well and go completely away. You can extinguish your karma. Um, the only thing is, it's like all of our grasping and delusion and, and error and lack of virtue, they form like a, a blockage. They block that hole where your karma can fall in and get extinguished. So if you just like relinquish all of that, there's like this momentum towards your center where you can just allow your karma. I mean, you could just like do it right now. You can just let all that stuff go in this moment right now. And you can feel all that karma just kind of gone. I, you, being a Buddhist it's, is a blast. It, it's fucking great, yeah. man. It's like amazing. So I, yeah, I, I totally agree, Star. I mean, as, with respect to karma, is there anything more fair and rational and just and just like kind of intuitive than the idea that you will get back exactly what you put into the thing, it, precisely in this in in exactly the same direction, the same measurement? It's it's no, it's really it's way, an, I I always I mean I come out into some I come out of the STEM world and uh, yeah I mean I always thought of it as just an extension of Newton's second law you know for every yes action, that's exactly action, the way I look at it as well an opposite reaction and and it, it, in in a sense it's almost silly like why wouldn't I guess once you get at a certain point for me it's yeah like, where where is the evidence that it isn't like that I guess you could say well people don't always get punished you know before they die but don't you have enough I mean it it just First of all, you'd have to explain why it shouldn't be the case. And second, you'd have to explain, okay, while it does occasionally happen that from our limited perspective, it seems as though bad things happen to good people and vice versa. Like, typically, that's not the case. Typically, you know, people get their just desserts. I think it's 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 readily apparent I mean, in my experience. It's like you have a definite gradation of good and of, of goodness and, 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 and something that's equally bad. And so you would think that, yeah, there should be a kind of gradation of result, not just the same thing for the same category of good or bad. But, I mean, it just to me, it's yeah. very, very reasonable. In that the, sense. Uh, the, actually, you know, what you guys are saying about the second law and everything, I also have, and I'm not even a STEM guy, but I also, like, have, have made that connection, too. In fact, it's, it makes, it's one of these things that makes so much sense that when I first started to grasp it, I was like, well, this can't be the case. It's too perfect you know what i mean like like that's almost like it's almost like too neat or something but actually that's the thing it, it's neat because it fits with yeah. it fits with the reality it fits with the way things actually work you know for for me like the the word that comes to mind is two things come to mind the way i like to think of this is like everything everywhere if you remove like the arbitrary 
it's totally appropriate, right? Like the leaves that are in my yard that I can see right now, they're totally appropriate. It's only when I start preferring things or kind of arbitrarily singling entities out and thinking of moral like strategies and arrangements that it, that things start to seem off. But like really, how could something be off? How could anything obstruct anything else, right? Like nothing in the universe gets in the way of anything else. Well, There's no there two be, things. What, yeah, what would there be to obstruct? Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what emptiness means, right? There's nothing. What would You would have to have something be not empty in order for there to be either something that's obstructing or something that is obstructed. Anyway, yeah. that's, a little, that's a little highfalutin. I don't know how much. <laughs> but uh, to, to bring this back around, because there was something we were talking about a, a second ago, and, and it relates. We have a great question in the chat. Um, what is your opinion of Western philosophers' take on Buddhism? Um, you know, we were talking about nihilism or uh, the, the, well, the, the name that... Sorry, Kagi, you wanted to jump in. I would say that, in, to a large extent, a lot of the misconceptions of around Buddhism come from... 19th century Western yes. misconceptions That's about exactly the right. nature That's what of I was Buddhism. Gonna, exactly. It's, it's, it's Schopenhauer, it's, it's Schopenhauer yes. via Nietzsche is, is where a lot of these misconceptions I mean, are coming heck, from. And, there was and, actually a yeah. person on Twitter, Eve Kaninian, I think, was like mm. literally arguing against Buddhism by taking the arguments Nietzsche made, which is just <laughs> shocking that she... Um, well, but, yeah. you know, and I mean, it, w w the funny thing about that as a kind of side note is... Um, when we when we started with talking about doing this episode and, and discussing these misconceptions, the Nietzschean sort of take definitely popped out in my mind. But then I was thinking about it more, and I was like, you know, I, I don't know how relevant that actually is because, first of all, no one reads anything anymore at all except for, like, I guess, Harry Potter. Um, to the extent that they do read things, it's, you know, again, Harry Potter. So so when, when, when Nietzsche in particular comes up, um, you know, I don't know how closely people have been following this. I assume our audience is pretty well familiar, but Nietzschean has kind of become a term of abuse from for, for people on who are not on the on the right wing to use against people on the right wing. And and there's a sort I think I was in Jacobin recently. There was sort of like a, a, an increasing recognition that you know Nietzschean thought via Bronze Age pervert and Bronze Age mindset is is increasingly important for the political right wing and or the dissident right in uh, in the Western world. Now, there's an extent to which that's long been the case. I mean, you know, Nietzsche is famously uh, uh, skeptical of the influence of uh, our Levantine friends in um, Western society. And, you know, there, there is sort of a um, there was a an attempt at drawing a line from Nietzsche's thought to the Third Reich. Uh, I, you know, I, I never really bought that entirely. I think that's kind of, that's, that's overblown and, and requires. That's a corruption of Nietzsche. Yeah. It, yes. Well, it was, it was just a, it was a bad faith well, the, misreading. The line exists, well, Nietzsche, but they, they put, they put with, way too much emphasis on it. Yeah. To an extent though, I don't think Nietzsche is intrinsically bad. I mean, when you, when you are able to Nietzsche's bring great. some of Nietzsche's thinking <laughs> yeah. back. I, I'm not dunking on Nietzsche at, to a at all. Yeah. Well, you gotta understand. I, there He's was phenomenal. actually, yeah, I, I was actually discussing this actually once with a, um, professor of literature um who i who i knew uh, once upon a time and he made a very interesting argument because he was he was jewish but he was also he's also just very bright and, and very and very fair-minded and or at least fair-minded enough to defend he was defending nietzsche's like quote-unquote anti-semitism he was saying that like for nietzsche 
the figure of the Jew is a kind of like almost a Jungian archetype. It's it's a sort of metaphysical. It, it, it's a character in yes. this kind of ethical system that doesn't necessarily like to understand when Nietzsche's talking about Jews or women or whoever. Like he's not actually talking about anything. Yes. He's talking about a certain mode of being in the world. Um, That's right. He if you read Nietzsche, it's a really important thing to understand. He. And he doesn't even try to hide it. He just sort of openly says, oh, am I making this up? Very well, I'm making this <laughs> yeah, up. Exactly. Like, he, so, when he, when he yeah. constructs uh, Buddhism through Schopenhauer or whatever, and by the way, I've read a ton of Nietzsche in and out, but I've never read a line of Schopenhauer, so don't let me talk <laughs> I, about I recently here, used my copy but, of The World as Will and Representation to like jack up my desk as I was like there you go. drilling to repair <laughs> something. <laughs> but, but anyway. No, but uh, just that, you know, I, I want to let you finish your point, DK, but like the thing about Nietzsche is like he just creates his own straw men and he does it in this really fun way and he yeah. does it in a really like exuberant way and he doesn't really try to hide it. So when he attacks Buddhism, he's attacking like Nietzsche's Buddhism. And, exactly. That's exactly thing, where like, I was going with, with the this. Jews, with the Christians, yeah. with everybody that he, he you know, he, he hates on Socrates and everything, but the, you know, and when he does, you're like, damn, Nietzsche. You Socrates, Socrates was a, right? <laughs> yeah, right. We could, I guess we can't say that on YouTube. No, we can't Look, it, it, when you're reading Nietzsche, you have to, so, so this is how I read Nietzsche. There's a section in Thus Spoke Zarathustra called On the Three Metamorphoses. That section, everybody should go back and read that. That is a section where he tells you this is, that's what Nietzsche really thinks, in my opinion. Um, so that's how I read it. He talks about, the, the negation of all values, which is something that has a very you could use in a very Buddhist way, and and he talks about the creation of values. Right, he goes into the desert and and slays the dragon known as Thou Shalt, and that's kind of his context. That's like how you read the whole thing. That's that heroic act of creation in the face of perceived nihilism. Right, that's his whole thing. Right. So and when, I like that. That's so when, cool. When he says, yeah, I, I like that too, and I think. To the extent that you can read like Nietzschean ethics as an exhortation to have an unmediated encounter with reality, uh, and you know, with naked that with naked and unmediated encounter with reality, that that is c compatible with the Dharma, I would say. But the the, the bigger uh, picture, yeah. the bigger picture point that I'm trying to make is just in a very similar way that I think Christians are familiar with, you know, like. The, the the point is slave morality is real like it's a I, it's a very it's 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 one of the most pressing issues of our time is the extent to which western civilization has a, adopted an alien slave morality that is destroying it from within that's that's fine now is that intelligible as christianity does slave morality is christianity exhausted by this this effete slave morality that demands you know that we be the victim and that we derive this kind of sickly um, disingenuous power from from casting ourselves as as victims. I don't think so. I don't think that's a fair reading of Christianity. I think probably if you press Nietzsche on the point, he would have admitted it. It doesn't matter either way. I'm just saying that you know that that's not that's not his point. His point is he's he's putting his finger on this sickness that Western civilization has, which is this this slave morality. Now. He's reading like the same way we said earlier, you know, he's responding to his Buddhism. He's responding to maybe not like the actual Christianity, if you want to say that, or Christianity proper. He's responding to 
the Christianity around him contemporary. You know right. what I mean? Which has only gotten yes. worse. Those tendencies have only. I mean, imagine how you know. How, Absolutely. How, how, how I mean, like it, he would. It's see late today. Protestant, post French Revolutionary Protestantism. Ugh. Maybe. You, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm myself yes. am a am a Mormon and Southern Baptist. <laughs> so let me tell you, when I go to either one of my churches, I see it. I see this stuff in real life, man. But but so. DK, I try not. To, I I know you yeah, have please. a point to finish there, and I want to let you finish. Yeah, yeah. I try no, not right. to blow. I'm gonna too let much you finish. No. I, I, I'm gonna let you finish. <laughs> no, but I actually what all I wanted to say was that you just articulated something that I have been that I immediately rang true for me, and it's something I've been sort of poking around the edges on on reading Nietzsche. Um, I, you just knit, hit the nail oh, on I'm the head, man. That. Like that is that is that is exactly true and exactly right. So, but Thank please you. continue. <laughs> but uh, I mean, so in a very so- I was just going to just to finish in a very similar way. I think when he's talking about Buddhism, I don't think he's identified. I mean, some of it is tied up in kind of strange, you could say, Orientalist ideas about Asian society and this this model of Asians as like, you know, the, 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 the kind of metaphysical female to the to the West's metaphysical male. Um, which, you know, again, it's, there's, all, there's a kind of a certain kind of proto social justice critique of that, that, that I could make that, you know, wouldn't, it's not that I think that would be entirely wrong. It's, it's just beside the point, which is that it, it, that just doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism, you know, like he, when he, and he didn't necessarily have any way to know, to know better. And, and yeah, it would, it would, it would take digging into Schopenhauer, which I don't know how, how, you know, relevant that would even be. But the point is, you know, he had this idea, which he transmitted and became influential in certain spheres um, of Buddhism as just a retreat from the world, a kind of Benedict option, so to speak. And, uh, you know, while everything sucks and everything's going to hell and, and, you know, life is suffering and blah, blah, blah. And so the best we can hope for, the best we can do is to just kind of withdraw into our monasteries and try to get, you know, focus on getting out of this really shitty situation that we found ourselves in because everything sucks. Um, And there's, you know, in, in a similar way where you can say like there's, it, it's not entirely wrong like that you know samsara does suck and it is one of the four um mind changings as they're called the kind of four most kind of important preliminary things that we need to understand one of which is as i've mentioned before the preciousness of our human life another one is the defects of samsara is is recognizing you know yes there's hells and the hells are maybe the worst place but you know the gods when their karma of being a god runs out that moment because they have clairvoyance because they're gods when they know that their karma as a god is running out there there's nothing they can do about it and, and they're going to fall from the god realms back into like lower levels of existence that is that that suffering that they experience exceeds anything any any in any of the hells because it's like you have all these nice things you have all these pleasures you have this wonderful existence and then you know that it's going to go away and there's nothing you can do to stop it and and you're just going to be an ordinary schlub again that the that, sense of sun sunwega is the term used mm. in the texts and it, it's this longing for for this cycle to end and in that sense there is like you say, DK, there it's not one hundred percent wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to say that there is that sign to Buddhism. Um, so, but so, there's yeah, obviously way more to, to it. Than, yeah, it's not just this kind of morose withdrawal from reality. Like that just has that, that's a that's a, yeah. And if you go and you know we I we're we're Western chauvinists on this podcast, I think, and I, yes, I you know yes. I, I I I love being Western. I love being white. I love. Who I am and everything. So I, I'm never one of these, like, you know, I'm not a weeaboo or anything. But it is true. Like, if you go to Asia and see, like, Buddhist societies, like Thailand, for example, or Japan in some senses, um, 
you you immediately see like okay well no these people are like it's not that they like are like all hiding in the forest all the time like they live they fuck they eat they laugh you know they fight and everything like that it's it's a big misconception to tibet picture it as, as a like, tibet as a as a buddhist empire was the terror of asia the the tibetan the most kind of important and famous tibetan buddhist king who wasn't the first but he was the one who consolidated the empire he forced his neighbors he forced he had a tibetan wife a chinese wife and a nepali wife from all of the kind of most important neighboring kingdoms that he you know as as tribute and 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 he had the you know this incredibly powerful army that just rampaged across central and 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 southern asia um yeah these are you know the, this idea that that buddhism is somehow effete or i don't even know i mean it's just it's nonsense now that again there there you know there, there's something to it what he's what, it's important to understand what nietzsche's critiquing isn't actually buddhism because he didn't know any buddhists he didn't really read any buddhist texts you know it's not that's not what he's talking about this isn't again to defend nietzsche it's just to say this is a misconception this is something that people have a wrong idea about and and it would be nice if we could correct that misconception it's something that's like in the broad strokes somewhat correct but it's it's also just like the least charitable possible reading of what that is like like okay this is how uncharitable of a reading that is like let's say that uh i lit you on fire or, or, or let's say i lit a pile of leaves on fire and then threw you in it and then when you got out of the flaming pile of leaves i was like wow what a, what a pussy you're you're withdrawing from the fire of the world right it makes yeah, sense yeah, yeah you know yeah. you you pull your hand out of the fire because it hurts it sucks. Okay, that's true, but it doesn't have to be this ignoble running away. It's it's a noble thing, you know. So they're dealing they're they're dealing with like the least charitable possible reading of that. It's it's kind of like the accusation that I guess it comes not from more from like the Christian side of Twitter, but that Buddhism is a form of Gnosticism. But the thing is, like a lot of the the ideas that are very much associated with Gnosticism, like antinatalism, are totally foreign to Buddhism. Like, as you said, the, the idea of a precious human birth, this is emphatically, uh, the, just like, being born a human is the best you can really do within samsara. So how can you take that and then draw an antinatalist message from that? And if you're not drawing that, then how can you really be, how can it really be Gnostic in any meaningful sense of the word? To me, the idea that this world is fundamentally corrupted by Satan and that it doesn't really matter and that the earth and the animals are all here to be used as mere tools uh, for the kingdom beyond, that is Gnostic. Yeah, that, it, it is very... fired. Mm. You're damn right. And also, let me say something else because I've been catching it lately. I'm doing yoga every day. I'm going to be so full of demons. Okay, I'm going to become a powerful <laughs> demon lord, and I'm going to subjugate this world. I have been listening to music that contains the Devil's Interval, also known as the Tritone or Dominant Seventh Chord. I'm growing wings every time I go by the church. I smell sulfur. So just to let y'all know it's it's time for y'all to square up. Now, when you say you're doing yoga, I hope this is the proper Hatha yoga, not white girl yoga, right? Right, yeah. Well, I'm doing it okay. so I can become full of demons, right? Because yoga um, yes. fills you with demons. Yeah. You know, you gotta be. In, well, you're in, joking. Like, no, go on. <laughs> no, no yeah, I'm, well, I'm joking. Storm, yeah, <laughs> Storm, you're you're, jo you're joking, but you're not joking, right? I, I know you, man, and I, I've seen your Twitter interactions and stuff. And I think that, uh, if I may, I think that some of that is is part of the reason we were doing this as a topic, right? Because, you know, we can joke about that, but I think that is like, I, I can't tell how serious these people are when they make these kinds of accusations. But I mean, they they are making those like what yoga opened you up to demons or something like. 
Right, like from hell, can yeah. Somebody ex- can somebody yeah, I think Sarah from Rose like, said something what? to that tone. Did he? Basically, okay, but like maybe, it's because it's. Could, could we give like a charitable like, version of, of, of this argument they're making and refute it? The, I, the charitable ver- version of the to Hindu gods who are demons. That's it's blasphemous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, is Which there, is, no, is there no more sophisticated? Take? I'm gonna, well, I would say this. I'm actually gonna, here, here's my hot take on this: is I actually think they're right. I actually think that mm-hmm. to the extent that yoga is predicated, like. Okay, if you just want to do calisthenics, then whatever. But even in that case, actually, like yoga, etc., are is predicated on the an idea of the human body as having certain forces, certain elemental forces. You know, the, maybe the most important single one is what's called Shakti, which is this kind of like female goddess power. It's coiled like a snake. Blah blah blah. Uh, I mean, there's others, and there's like you know channels and stuff, and like the whole subtle body thing, and the counts differ, etc. But um, you know, the, these forces are understood to be divine. They're understood to be divine forces. Now, there's a kind of ecumenical reading of that, where you would say that you know, in just the same way that the Christian tradition teaches that the body is the temple of God, that that's you know, that the, the what that means is like in a Buddhist context, you could say you know, the 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 body is the mandala of the peaceful and wrathful deities, or or in a you know more you know. Vedic sense that that there's this um, Shiva and Shakti or blah, 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 blah. But the point is that, you know, when you're doing yoga, um, even if you're not actually intending to it, what you're doing is you're manipulating these divine energies that are that are um, understood to comprise this kind of uh, non-Christian pantheon. So even though it may just look like you're stretching, like actually you're worshiping Ravi the sun. I mean, you know, you could. Yeah, I mean, no, it. To, to be clear, it's based of them as Christians to say that. It's also just wrong. Uh, you, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, not... Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, if yeah, I'm yeah. full of demons, somebody's going to have to explain well, the, how the, I'm the not... Problem, I mean... Yeah, the problem from a the problem from a kind of like a broader perspective is is Christianity never really re, like resolved... Or, I mean, it, it hasn't... It, it's not relevant, ultimately, from a Christian soteriological framework, so they don't really have to from their own perspective. But as a kind of outsider, the, the problem is that it doesn't the, the the difference between there are no other gods and you shouldn't worship any other gods is is kind of difficult to account for and and there's a sense in which you could say like okay well there's clearly negative spirits but the idea that you could have a benevolent spirit or even really a neutral spirit that's very powerful powerful to the level of what in buddhism you would call a worldly god in other words not an enlightened being not not a being that has perfected their mind perfected their intention but nonetheless maybe very good maybe very bad maybe somewhere in between but but something that's very powerful um, and that needs to be dealt with this is sort of it 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 becomes you know like christianity sort of leaves it at you shouldn't you know, it's like, well, do they exist or do they not exist? Or do they, you know, what should our relationship with them be? It's not necessarily clear. They just kind of drop off the map. Whereas for, for Buddhism, it's very, you know, I think it's, it's much, um, there's a much greater willingness to recognize like, you know, okay, Shiva is real. Um, you know, all these other, you know, Ganesh or whoever is real. They're not Buddhas or maybe they are in certain versions, but if they are, then you can, you know, treat them a certain way. But to the extent that we're going to say that, you know, Indra is not, a Buddha. He's a very extraordinarily powerful god. He's an extraordinarily powerful being, but he's not a perfectly enlightened Buddha, and therefore you don't you're not going to treat him as such. But if you piss Indra off, you're going to have a bad day. So don't, you know, be careful. Right. Um, and and this kind of thing. I think. And also, I'm not trying. To, 
<laughs> let me hey look let me clarify okay. real quick uh, i'm not i'm not trying to like be mean you know i'm just messing with you guys um i just thought that was funny and it would be fun to talk about <laughs> well i think actually Rene ganon's interpretation which i mean he was of course he converted to islam but it may be possible to take this from a christian perspective as well was that the hindu deities were essentially angels which is kind of an yeah. interesting take yeah yeah when or aliens. Was talking, I was I was thinking, you know, there, <laughs> there are, you know, there, there's angels, you know, like there is an acknowledgement, uh, at least in like um, sort of country Christianity, that that there are beings that aren't Jesus or Mary or part of the Trinity, uh, and yet are very good. You know, they're benevolent; they can help you, and they're definitely not people either. And these beings do exist, and you know, they, they usually get. Um, uh, interpreted as as being angels in the Christian um, cosmology or whatever. Um, and now, obviously, there's not a one to one correlation to the kind of things that DK was talking about. But I, I'm just bringing up the the fact that that all these kinds of systems have had to deal with this this sort of understanding of the universe that there might be an ultimate, uh, and but there might be things that are also like definitely more powerful than humans, but aren't humans. Um, and yet aren't the ultimate themselves. And, and you know, it's not that radical of a thing that, that to, to acknowledge that and try to create a system that, that you know, works with that. Yeah, the, the lack of like a, a bestiary of, of energetic beings or, or, or what have you is sort of like hastily filled in with, it's a demon. When, when the reality yeah. is there's all kind of space for all kind of things. Uh, DK, there's a you, you said we're going to address a couple of these questions. I see a good one from F.O. Bo in there. I want to drop a hot take uh, before we get to that. Is well, that, that cool? Yeah, well, I, I was actually going to going to going to seg seg you into I, that was a, that was a, a fascination reference by the way. I just want to make that very clear. But uh, anyway, uh, nonetheless, did you have a hot take you wanted to in before or or because yeah, I want to I want to I, I want to yeah. I want to let you say you, but uh, here's my hot take. So there's this somebody was. Uh, Do you want to say the question first this... though? Or was no this no no I it's oh, not okay. this okay. is this is more on the yoga thing. Um, the uh, somebody was posting around this picture that I guess people are like sunning their assholes right. Uh, to li lying down on their backs, holding their ankles uh, in the sunlight and letting the sun hit their butts, right? <laughs> and uh, people were passing this around like, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. Like, look at these idiots and everything. Here's my hot That's take. That's based. Thank you. You stole my hot take. Uh, <laughs> oh no, I'm so sorry. Oh God. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Here's my hot take. Those people are only idiots in the sense that they're like Instagram people, like trying to show like to that degree, like, yeah, it's super annoying when people are like, look at me, look at me, look at what I'm doing. However, the practice itself based. Hell yeah. No, you're exactly right. Yeah. Th those people are idiots. They just happen, happen to be doing something that if you really do it, uh, will grant you I intense power. Take it away, TK. Yeah, that was that's a I like that hot take. So the the question that we got, which is related very much to these um, things, is um, guys, sorry for being completely autistic, but what the hell is an Adi Buddha? Do you think advanced practitioners, lamas in Tibet, have a similar understanding of Adi Buddha as saints in the West has of God? Um, the TLDR answer, actually, I would say is yes, but or close enough for army work. The um, the, the so Adi Buddha as a term, Adi is the Sanskrit word that means beginning, essentially. Um, and 
the the idea with Adi Buddhas is that they're sometimes this. The, I think the best way to translate that is primordial Buddha. It's beginning in the sense of like before the beginning, because as we've discussed before. But to to reiterate for those who are new, maybe or who don't know. Um, in Buddhist cosmology, there is no beginning and there is no end to the multiverse. There's an infinite sea of multiverses, no beginning, no end. Um, so, you know, when you talk about a primordial Buddha, what you mean is a Buddha before there was Buddha before, like, because in, in the, in the, in the classical sort of original Buddhist context, we talk about like the life story of the Buddha. Um, you know, there is a, at the most basic level we have, okay, our Prince Siddhartha, who underwent some experiences. He, you know, had pleasures. He was like, oh, there must be more to it than this. So he left the palace. So he fell in with some ascetics. It was a little too intense. He's like, okay, well, I starved myself and still didn't reach the goal that I wanted to reach. There, You know, that's not right either. So he sat down under the Bodhi tree and he meditated until he attained perfect enlightenment. The end. Okay, great. Now, in, in the kind of Buddhist framework, a bigger... Buddhist framework it was it was actually even more to it than that it's not it's not that if one of us necessarily went through the same sequence of events that we would have the same result because the Buddha our Buddha in this you know system this world system this universe that we live in right now um you know he he that came that experience that he had came at the end of eons and eons and eons of, of accumulating merit and wisdom and so you you know he does all these good deeds and he acquires all this wisdom through meditation to the extent that it eventually he manages to take birth at a certain time and place at which you know at the at the kind of culmination of that in in, in, a, in a typical buddhist framework you would say it takes three in, incalculable eons three like whole universe cycles worth of lives um before you you can reach that that point where you can take birth in in auspicious enough circumstances to attain final and complete buddhahood the the big picture point being that there's a sequence that there's like we are all sentient beings you know i'm an ordinary sentient being unenlightened you know we're on the path um and so you know we are we are working on accumulating merit and wisdom so that we can make this kind of a transition in a certain sense if you look i mean you, you know, again this all kind of goes haywire when you start talking from a more ultimate kind of a perspective but from a kind of more relative conventional perspective you could say we are sentient beings we have defilement we have flaws you know we have problems um we work on those until they're no you know they get finer and finer and finer and more and more subtle until they no longer exist at which point we become buddhas okay that's like kind of the general model but in in the Mahayana and, and in certain kind of corners of the Mahayana, and this is especially important for for tantric Buddhism, um, it's understood that like because essentially you know the nature like the nature of reality and the nature of Buddhahood are are really the same thing. Um, that that you know that that there essentially there were there was there were Buddhas. There have always been Buddhas. There were before, in a sense, you could say in this, like before the beginning or, or however you want to frame it or kind of try to conceptualize it, even though it's not really something that, that you can wrap your head around conceptually. The point is that they're, you know, built into the nature of reality, like the nature of reality itself is enlightened. And so there are these, these things that we call Adi Buddhas or primordial Buddhas who, um, you know, we can appeal to because, they're they're kind of they were never not enlightened. They they didn't have to go through this uh this this sequence of um you know having been ordinary sentient beings and then attaining 
enlightenment. They, they, they're, they are enlightenment itself primordially manifest in a certain way. And if that doesn't make too much sense to you, really don't worry about it. It, it's, it doesn't have to be relevant. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. It, it, it's, it's a way of thinking about a kind of, uh, pure, pure perfection, primordial perfection beyond, you know, ultimately stainless beyond the ability to be stained. And, and in that sense, in that sense, in the sense that these, these, these Buddhas, these Adi Buddhas are, are all pervasive. They're never non-existent. They're co-equal and co-extensive with the nature of reality as such. They were never separate from reality. Um, that gets at something it becomes very difficult to account for how that would be different from God the Father in a in a Christian Trinitarian model. The the main difference would be um, in a very similar way that you have a similar problem in terms of you know God the Son in the form of the incarnate Christ. In Christian theology, that's an exclusive event. That's something that like the nature of reality is such that the Son only manifests once in this one particular lifetime in this one particular being that we that we call Jesus. Um, that's, that's not the case from a Buddhist perspective. Buddhism would, would say that, you know, while we could, we could say as Buddhists that Jesus is fully, you know, fully enlightened and fully coextensive with the nature of reality. And he is, you know, Dharmata made flesh and, you know, the nature of reality, God, let's say made flesh, um, that, that it, 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 it's hard. You, 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 you can't really say from a Buddhist perspective that that, that only happened once. And, it, you know, it just doesn't really work from a Buddhist cosmological perspective. It, similarly with the Adi Buddhas, with these primordial Buddhas, there's not just one. It's not like there's just one. You could say there's one Dharmakaya in a sense, but every Buddha who would taint, when there's Dharmakaya is this, uh, the, the, the nature of a Buddha is you're embodied in certain ways. There's a reality body. There's a body when a Buddha attains enlightenment, they manifest a body that's all pervasive throughout all space and time is immaterial and, and can be kind of understood in a, in a certain sense in this very, in this sense as being very much like God, the father. Um, yeah, but you know, every Buddha does that and there's infinite Buddhas. So it, it becomes hard. But again, like these are the kinds of questions from my perspective. It's like, it's just so far above my pay grade and I don't, I don't, the sense I have implicitly and I could be wrong, but who knows is I don't think like really, I don't think enlightened masters, I don't think, you know, great saints like trouble themselves with working out. Like you could, you could have a theological debate maybe if it serves certain kinds of practical purposes, but in terms of your actual spiritual development for any of us, if you if we have any Christians listening to this program or, or, or if, you know, any of us who are Buddhists who are engaging with, Christians or whatever. I just don't think that the, these kinds of, you know, it's like you're, you're, that's at the level of arguing about the number of angels that can fit on the head of for, a pin. It's just not helpful. For, for a good analogy. And by the way, that was an excellent breakdown. Thank you. Um, and Thank I you. learned something. I, I didn't, I didn't know some of that stuff actually, but um, you know, imagine you're, you have a, you have a, a spaceship and you're trying to get to a certain star far off across the universe is it important to like have an idea of what the star is? Yeah, you, you you need to see that point of light. You need a direction to go in. You, you need a direction to head towards, right? Uh, something to set your set your maps by and everything. So in that sense, these kinds of questions about like, you know, like what lies at the heart of it? What what is the end? Like what is the nature of the universe and everything? They are important in in a certain respect because you 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 do sort of need that kind of thing, but. 
what is the chemical makeup of that star? Like how much hydrogen does it have in it? And like how many meter, you know, how many uh, millions of miles across is it and everything like those questions aren't that important to just get going on your journey, right? When you get to that star, when you get closer, you'll, you'll be able to look at it and know these kinds of things. So it's not that the question isn't real and the answers aren't real and it's not that they're not important it's just that when you're just leaving the solar system on your journey you don't need to know all those things in fact you probably can't know all of those things in your current condition um and it, it can be a little bit of a uh you, you know a distraction to try to insist on having all those answers before you get there but that's not to say that the answers aren't real and that there isn't a way to figure them out. I, I always think of that like, you know, like we, the, I was sort of being a bit cheeky last week or a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about like, does it matter whether or not the dharmas are, or, or the skandhas are empty if, if I don't, if I'm not attached to them? And I think you guys quite rightly joked back. That's a very Nagarjuna <laughs> question to ask. But, you know, it, it points to the the same thing. It's like, when you get more and more and more enlightened, these things will start to make more sense. Um, and that's not to say that in a less enlightened state, you can't engage with them intellectually. Like it's not to say, oh, don't ask questions. Like, sure, you can ask the question. Just make sure you prioritize what's important for your own journey. Make sure you're make sure you're taking the next step and not avoiding the next step because you can't understand what's going to happen 100 steps from now. Do you know what I mean? Like if I don't know what's going to happen 100 steps from now, I can say, well, I can't answer that question. Therefore, I'm not going to take the next step. No, that's a really bad idea. Take the next step and and keep trying, you know, keep forcing yourself but uh, to try and understand, but don't let it stop you from answering the, the problem that's right in front of you. Thank you. I think that's a great explanation. And yeah, and, and there's even, there's a kind of, I don't know, I, I presume this was intentional, um, but either way, you know, there's a very famous example in Buddhism. Um, there's, there's two stories, I guess, that are that are right on this point. The first is, you know, the someone asked the Buddha, essentially, you know, cosmological type questions, you know, does the world exist forever? How many, you know, what is the world exist or not exist or whatever? And he's like, if someone shoots you with the poison arrow, are you concerned with like who shot it and what the velocity of the unladen sparrow was that, you know, delivered the, no, you want to pull it out. Um, you know, similarly, like I'm concerned with, with, you know, we're, we're concerned with practical issues here, which is not to, you know, elsewhere he does talk about cosmology, but, but the point, you know, to that person at that time, he's like, look, this is not going to help you. Um, the, the, the other, um, thing that I was going to start with, which is, which is also, you know, very, very famous, uh, in, in Buddhist, in the Buddhist tradition is the, the metaphor of the raft where the Buddha says, you know, the teachings are like a raft. You have a river that you need to get across and, you know, so you build a raft and you take the raft and you cross the river. But then once you, and then he asks the monks, you know, like these, these, these disciples, he's like, okay, so the monks, you know, once you've crossed the river, do you like take the raft on your back and walk around with it? And they're like, no, no. you And he's like, good, good. That's right. No, you don't do that. You know, once you've gotten where you need to go and you cross the, the river, um, you leave the raft on the shore and and that's sort of like what how the Buddha taught conceptual type understanding is to be it's something that you need you actually do need to have correct conceptual understanding you have to you know there are certain things that we need to understand but but eventually all of this kind of stuff or at least you know most of it or a lot of it needs to get um, needs to get left behind because it's not it's not actually what it's about you need it until you don't. And then when you don't, you'll know you don't need it. Right. It'll yeah. make sense. Yeah. 
on, on that note, I also want to, because we were, um, um, the, in terms of things that we need or don't need or think, you know, the broader topic of misconceptions about Buddhism, um, I, I maybe should have said something earlier, but that's fine. There, there's a, another misconception related to this topic of karma. I think that's a big one that people, people have this idea that, that karma is, um, not, not important somehow or not relevant or, or that it's supernatural or something, but it's like, it's no, people, you know, this idea and this, I don't know I haven't encountered that so much in our thing, I guess, because people have in our thing tend to be, tend to have a better understanding. Even the so-called atheists have a, have a better understanding than like secular liberal type atheists who, you know, like Stephen Batchelor, we discussed in, in, in a previous episode, um, people who want to say like, you know, oh, karma is supernatural or something. And though, you know, it's not, it's just a kind of holdover from a benighted, you know, medieval Indian something, something or something. A superstition. A superstition. That's right. And, and nothing could be further from the truth that that's, first of all, that's just not true. I mean, you, you know, if you pay attention in your own life, I highly encourage this to see, you know, how your own actions um, if you do something that you know is wrong, often you'll experience something that may seem completely unrelated, but like sort of in a very strange way kind of lines up with um, what you did um, and vice versa with, with doing good things. Um, but the, the point is that, you know, whether or whether or not that that's like actually true or I, I guess you could say it would definitely be a misconception to think that you could be a Buddhist or you could, you would be doing something that could be understood as Buddhism while saying that karma is just some kind of superstition and you don't need to think about it or worry about it. Like that's, that's completely wrong. Um, and I did want to want to say that. Hello. Um, I was reading this question. CS. <laughs> yeah, me got... too. Sorry. Yeah. yeah I was uh, <laughs> muted because I was responding to CS. Uh, you guys want to take it to that and then we can, and then we can go. Oh, last okay, kind of I'll read the question. He says, uh, what hope does Buddhism offer if the thing that reincarnates isn't actually you? Uh, is it about getting beyond hope and despair into neither stoicism? Um, okay, so, I mean, <laughs> well, this is you. It's interesting that this question is getting asked now because this is pretty much exactly what's been the topic of all their MMK episodes, right? Um the way I will answer this question is is from the viewpoint that's familiar to me, and I will say that it it the reincarnation, you know, if there's no self, then what reincarnates, right? It's a good question. Um, there's no specific thing that reincarnates because there are no specific individual things at all. So the utility, it, it, the way you're asking this question about utility, like what am I getting out of? being involved with this tradition is that this is going to clue you into the things uh, to the way that things quote unquote really are rather than how they appear. Right. It's going to be able for you to sort of bow out of being seduced by the illusion of self essences, which is ends up indirectly. And then sometimes directly uh, causes you a lot of pain and suffering. There's sort of like, you know, you're caught up in this kind of conceptual mental prison about all this stuff you know, uh, and this is your way, you know, all of that is actually somewhat invalidated. I mean, it makes sense on sort of like the most mundane conventional level, but it's not actually true, right? Reincarnation is a conventional understanding. That's a way for us to talk about something. It's not something uh, it, from like a strictly Nagarjuna 
view that's going to be held to be ultimately true. And it's 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 going to be true from a conventional yeah. standpoint. Yeah, that's well said, my friend. And I, um, you know, you said uh, not to jump on your words or anything, but you you know, you said that th- this clinging to yourself, essentially, the the idea that you really exist is, is going to sometimes cause you pain and suffering. And I was going to jump in and say it's going to always cause. Yeah. You pain well, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That is the that is the source of pain and suffering. So. You know, from a conventional point of view, when you when you feel like yourself to be, you know, me, I'm Aura, and uh, and this is me going through my life. And if I believe in reincarnation, then I believe, you know, this is me going through these series of lives. Then it's like I think CS is asking a good question. Like this is not a dumb question at all. This is like a very key question. So what hope is there if like I don't remember, you know, if my future self in my stream doesn't remember who I was and like what, you know, kind of what's the point? But Storm King is exactly right. It's the the point of of the teaching is that not only is that self not real, but it the belief that the self is real is what is causing you that that pain and suffering in the first place. So you we're trying to find our way out of that delusion um and it's it's almost putting the cart before the horse to to worry about like what's going to happen to the self of mine because what i'm trying to do is actually get rid of that self and it's scary like this is why people don't normally do it uh this is why we need the buddha to teach us these things um, because we cling like desperately to this sense of self but it's that very clinging that is causing us suffering and when you can summon up the the clarity and the the calm and the peace and also the courage to let that go what you find on the other side is not like oh god i'm gone i'm there's nothing here it's like you're actually really fully alive um i, I know i'm sounding cheesy it's like you're more there like you, you're more there you're more yourself and um there's something that that C.S. Lewis talked about, um, and I, I bring him up a lot on this just because I think he's a great writer. And I, I had, growing up a Christian, I have a ton of sympathy for the Christian tradition and everything. And he has this vision of heaven where, you know, because he, he, he addresses this idea that like, you know, that I think modern Christians feel that you go up to heaven, you become this boring harp playing guy who just like, you know, stands around in a white robe and like, things angelic songs all the time and frankly to the average person that sounds kind of shitty right like who wants to do that that sounds really boring and he paints these amazing pictures of like when you when you go to heaven in c.s lewis's interpretation of it you become more yourself than you've ever been like you become this real personality that you've always been all the time now of course that doesn't map onto buddhism very well when we talk about becoming more real personality but I like that image of like you well, really it, it, actually manifesting your real self for the from first a, from time. From a tantric perspective, you could say, and there's some debate over kind of the contours of this, but it's understood that actually we are already Buddha. We and and and, and so yep. there's a particular like we have a certain we have a we, we man when we manifest our, who what we actually already were, which is a Buddha that looks in a certain way and has a certain name, etc. It's like you know. We actually do have, I mean, there's a famous kind of um, uh, Tibetan 
teacher, a uh, really important figure actually named um, Ju Mipam or Mipam Rinpoche. And he taught that actually we have like, you know, like, you know, you see sometimes iconographic representations of, um, of, um, of Alokiteshvara with like four arms and a jewel and a lotus and blah, blah, blah. It's like just in exactly that kind of the same way. Like, you know, we'll have whatever eight arms or two arms or however many arms and however many heads. And, and like that, that Buddha that we eventually will be like, that's actually in a sense our, not in a sense. I mean, that we, we already are that, that that's, that that's our true thing. And, and, and it's just, you know, the process of, in a sense, you could say attaining that is the process of just getting rid of the things that are preventing us from manifesting that which we already are, which is, you know, looking and, and, and interacting with the world, having a certain activity and, and so on. Um, now, you don't necessarily have, you know, if you're not a tantric kind of person, then you don't necessarily have to look at it that way. But but I think it's an interesting idea. And I think it gets at some I, I've always felt that the tantric perspective um maps onto that Christian perspective in, in a way that's it, it, it it's a better fit. It's still not maybe 100% perfect. Yeah, it, it works it's... better as a comparative framework than a kind of straight Theravada or, or non-tantric kind of Mahayana perspective. Um, it, it, that's my opinion, but I've all, I think that you, you, when, when you have use of certain tantric concepts, you can map those onto foundational Christian concepts in a way that, that is productive, I think. Um, let me answer this question inside. really yeah. quick. Uh, the way this is, let me answer CS. So yes, the way I would answer him, if he had come to me and said, I want you to teach me Zen, right? This is what I would say. I would say, before you start worrying about reincarnation and selves and all of that, before you bring any of that complex stuff into it, let's take a look and see how things are when we don't bring anything into it, right? DK had mentioned earlier, you know, it's, that there is Buddha is intrinsic into what reality is, right? It's the, the um, enlightenment is what things are. Everything is enlightenment. There is nothing else, right? So when you're letting go completely and just existing and seeing and being and reveling in and coming into contact with the unmediated truth of that which is, that is outside of being constrained by some flimsy concept like reincarnation or a self, right? That actual manifest meat of reality is glorious and transcendent and already here. And it, it's true in a manifest way. So, you know, that is the framework. I would encourage you to approach those type of questions about these sort of like petty contradictions in. And I think also that's the spirit that like the MMK has written in, right? That's why we're, autistically going through all of this stuff, right? To let that higher kind of way of looking at it, which maybe is, I mean, it's the Zen way of looking at it, but it's sounding to me like it's also kind of the tantric way of looking at it. But that's what I would say. No, yeah, that's, that's. I think that's very well said. Um, do, does anyone, Kagi, do you have any closing thoughts? Does anyone have any closing thoughts? I mean, to me, it's just, it, it seems like the way I always look at it is, you know, it's it's true that a being who is reborn is not the same as the being who came before, but they're not completely different either. Yeah. And I mean, you can kind of think about the same way about you of 10 years ago versus you now, or you in 10 years in the future versus you now. So what's the difference, really? Well, well said, the, my friend. Go ahead, DK. No, please. Uh, uh, or do you have... Something. Yeah, well, you were asking for closing thoughts, and I it sounded like those were um, Kagu's closing thoughts, and I, I do have some, if I may. Please. Yeah. So, um, 
I, I had written down a lot of things, uh, maybe seven or eight things that were misconceptions about Buddhism that I wanted to address. And we addressed most of them. A couple of them aren't important, but there's one last thing I, I wanted to talk about. And this is a, a misconception that I actually don't think probably anybody listening to this has. And I think it's kind of an old fashioned one, but it brings up an important point for me. And that, and that is this kind of old idea that, you know, Buddhists are worshiping the Buddha. Right. And I think most sophisticated people understand that that's not the case. The Buddha is not a god. Um, he was a man. And that's what I wanted to end on here, which is just um, that, yeah, Buddhists don't worship the Buddha. Um, they revere him. They listen to his teachings. They follow his teachings to the best of their ability. They try to emulate the Buddha, etc. So obviously the Buddha's <laughs> he's the he's the most important guy. And uh we listen to the Buddha. However, he was just a man. He was just a guy, really. And he was a very, very special guy. He was very you know, amazing and important. Um, and he went through many, 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 many um, uh, trials and, and did many good deeds to become the person that we know as the Buddha. But it's really important in Buddhism that he was, he was, he was a man. He was a guy. Um, and the reason that's important is that I'm a man. I'm a guy, and and you guys, everybody listening, everybody on this call, we're all just people, and the Buddha was just a person, and the, and Buddhism at its core is a, a practice that people can do to become like the Buddha, um, uh, and yeah, I, I guess that's all I wanted to say. If you are a person, <laughs> you can be a Buddha. That's it. Not just you. You're any all every sentient being. Any sentient. That's right. That's right. So uh, I think <laughs> that, that was so appropriate that we got the background baby right on that moment. So, so I think with that, uh, we'll call it a week. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>